Please turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. We'll continue our study this morning. You ever struggled with feelings of inadequacy? You ever uh, felt unworthy? Ever wondered, why does God love me? How could God possibly use me? Remember the summer after my freshman year of college, I applied for and I was accepted as a counselor at a summer camp, and I was really excited when I got that letter of acceptance, and then almost immediately I began to think, what if I can't do the job? And I thought, what if I, what if I get to camp, and all of the other counselors are just so incredibly spiritual, and all of a sudden I'm discovered, and, and I just don't measure up. I stick out like a sore thumb, and they begin to think to themselves, why did we select this guy after all? You ever felt that way? Well, when I got to camp, I realized that everybody else was just like me. That they had their issues and their struggles. They had some areas of maturity and immaturity. None of us, in a sense, really were, were worthy to be there. And I began to uh, discover and believe and apply this truth. God calls the unqualified and he qualifies the called. Now, there's never been a, a person that was Worthy to be called by God. That's what grace means. God calls the unqualified and then he qualifies the called. Uh, we're going to start this morning on the story of Abraham's life. And um, this really defines Abraham's life. Abraham was not a man who was worthy to be called by God. Uh, and yet, right behind Jesus Christ, Abraham becomes the most important figure in all of biblical history. So as we begin his story, I want to kind of move back a little bit and let's set the stage Back in chapter 11, verse 7, the Lord said, Come, let us go down and let us confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city and they stopped building the tower. The lesson that we learned from Tower of Babel is that when mankind all gets together, good things don't always happen. Right? They, were, they were bent upon evil, and so when they put their minds together, they became more and more and more evil. And God, in his grace and kindness, disciplined or judged mankind by scattering mankind, confusing their language. And from this place, all of the nations began to be formed, and the families of the earth. And God began a new program by selecting one man and one family through whom he would bring salvation to all of the families of the earth. That's the story of Abraham. Let's look at his family background, beginning in chapter 11 and verse 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, I do a lot of weddings, and uh, it's inevitable. Anytime I show up for a wedding, I meet lots of the relatives, and, and, and I'll meet Uncle Bob, and Uncle Bob will say, you know, 
I, here's how I'm connected to the family. I'm, I'm the bride's mom. I'm her sister's cousin's husband, but I'm actually not part of the family by birth. I married into the family, but you remember Joe and Sam. They're related to me again, but they're not by birth. They're by marriage. And, you know, and they go into this long explanation. I move from family member to family member, and they try to help me connect all these things. And they expect me to remember all of these things, not just for the weekend, but maybe five years later when I see the family again. And, you know, and so I decided, I did a, weekend, uh, a wedding last weekend. I thought, from now on, every time I do a wedding, I'm going to tell the bride and the groom, give me a family tree. Right? So when I show up at the wedding and you know, Uncle Joe starts going on, I go, hold on a second. Okay, show me where you fit, right? And, you know, and I can trace all these things because I want to understand how the whole package fits together, especially when there's really weird stuff that's going on in the family. And so what I'm going to do as we set the background for Abraham's life is we're going to look at his family tree. And we're going to be with Abraham for a while, so we'll come back to the family tree a few times. Noah, you'll recall, had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Among Shem's descendants was a man named Terah. Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, Haran died, but he had a son, Lot. Nahor had other children as well, and they'll figure into the story later on. But Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the son of promise, the miracle son. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the chosen son. He would later be named Israel. He would have 12 sons, and these 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a little bit of the the background, what his family tree looked like. Now, to put this in geographical perspective, Abraham was born in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's in southern Mesopotamia. You'll see it in the bottom right of this slide. Uh, At the time that Abraham lived, the city probably had about 360,000 people. And so for that day, it was an enormous city. It was a center of commerce and education, science, research. It was also a thoroughly pagan city. It was one of the centers of worship for uh, the moon god. This is the setting in which Abraham grew up. But Abraham had a problem, a very serious problem in those days. You see it in chapter 11, verse 30. His wife Sarai was barren. She had no child. And in that day, children were everything. This is how you would leave a legacy. This is how you would provide for yourself. But Abraham was 75 years old. His wife was 65 years old and he had no children. And this is what the town looked like. Much more developed at the time. For years there was debate about whether it was in northern or southern Mesopotamia. We now know definitively it was in southern Mesopotamia and then you will see in the background one of the the ziggurats or towers that I showed you uh, last week. This one has been reconstructed, and on the top of that, there would have been a temple to the moon god. This is where Abram grew up, in the shadow of the temple to the moon god. A man who now had become old, 75 years old, settled in his life, and in this setting, God called Abram to follow him. Read with me chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. God said to Abram, go. Where? Well, somewhere. I'm not going to tell you right now, Abram. Just go. Go. You won't know until you get there, but you'll know once you get there because then I I will tell you that you have arrived. Now, I remember when our children were little. 
they couldn't stand this. I mean, we could really unsettle their entire world if we didn't give them advance notice. We're going to go somewhere. Where? Where exactly, Dad? We're going to go here, and we're going to leave in three days. We're going to be gone for three days, and then we'll return. Who are we going to see while we're there? You know, I mean, it, they want to know all those details because that put their minds and hearts at ease. It gave them a sense of security. Abraham is told to go. Where? I'll, I'll let you know when you get there. The writer of the Hebrews picks up this event, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. Just go. God said, go somewhere, and as you go, leave just about everything. Everything that gives you comfort and security, I want you to leave. Leave the culture that you know, leave the language behind. Leave your house, leave your home, leave your friends, leave your distant relatives, it says. Leave your immediate family, leave everything. And remember, Abraham is 75, he's wealthy, and he's settled. And God says, pack up and leave. And by the time I finished college, I remember that I had uh, hardly any possessions. <laughs> Everything that I owned, I could literally put in the back of my car. And so I packed up to go to Dallas, to go to seminary. And, and literally everything that I not just needed, but everything I owned fit in the back of that vehicle. And it was really simple for me to pack up and move and go several hundred miles it was a simple, simple process. I think now about packing up my family and I go, oh my gosh, to pack up and leave would be just, I mean, gosh, what a logistical nightmare. It would be so hard. All of our stuff and we'd have to sell stuff and pack stuff and sell our home and our, our web of relationships is so deep. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine right now uprooting. How much more difficult was it in Abraham's day? He probably owned land. He owned all kinds of livestock. It probably took months to prepare to depart. And then he would get on a, on, a, on a donkey or on a camel or on foot, and God would call him to walk 800 miles through the desert. There's very little water as he would travel. There are bandits all along the way. He had no cell phone. He had no email. He couldn't text and say, hey, where's the next Starbucks? We're running out. There was nothing. And in fact, Abraham would never get to go back to his homeland. God called him away. And what did he have from the Lord? Well, all that he had was the word of God. Okay, all that he had was simply a promise that God would provide for him. Read with me in chapter 12, again, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now what's interesting here is that there's actually uh, a sevenfold promise that is embedded in these three verses. And there are actually seven components to the promise. And when the promise is repeated to Isaac... It's got seven components. And when it's repeated again later to Jacob, it's got seven components. In other words, this is the perfect promise. But it can be boiled down to three things. Land, seed, and blessing. And the promise made to Abraham boils down to three things. Land, seed, and blessing. First, land. 
God says, go, go forth. Literally, it says in Hebrews, go to you, which means go by yourself. Anyone who's not walking with me, leave behind. Go by yourself from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Well, exactly what land? Abraham doesn't learn until later God will tell him, chapter 15. We'll look at this in a few weeks. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, now to your descendants, I have given this land where you have now stopped. This is the land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Does this sound familiar to you? Those dimensions of that land, does that sound at all familiar? Anybody? It should, because we talked about it before when we were in Genesis 1 and 2. These are the same dimensions as Eden. The promised land is roughly the same area as Eden. God says to Abram, I'm going to give you Eden. I'm going to give you the center of the earth. I'm going to give you that place from which I will cause my glory to go out to all of the nations. Your family, Abraham, will be at the center of history and at the center of redemption. This will be your land. I will give you a seed that is descendants. And really, this promise was the one that was most important to Abraham. I think Abraham probably would have been content renting land wherever he went. But what he really longed for more than anything else was to have an heir, to have a son. And and this promise will form kind of the centerpiece of the narrative of Abraham's life. Will he have a son? How will he have a son? What will become of that son? How will God fulfill this particular promise? God will reiterate this promise over and over to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, again, this is before he has a son Isaac. It says, the word of the Lord came to him again saying, one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So Abraham was beginning to wonder and doubt, God, I, I don't have any children. I've got a slave who lives in my house, Eliezer, and right now he will be my heir, but I want a son. God says, don't worry. You will have a son, one who comes forth from your own body. And you won't just have a son, but your son will have sons. And they will have sons, and they will have so many, in fact, Abram, that you will become many nations. Not just a family, but nations. Genesis 17, I have made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. All of the Arab peoples descend from Ishmael, from Abraham through Ishmael, to multiple nations and multiple tribes. And obviously the Jewish people from Abraham through Isaac. Thousands and thousands and millions of descendants from this one man. And, and why did the Jews continue to exist to this day in spite of all the persecutions against them and, and the Holocaust? Because God always keeps his word. God made a promise And God is always faithful. Everything that he promised to Abraham, everything that he promises to you, God will come through because God never, ever breaks his word. You will receive a land, you will have descendants, and you will have a blessing. Chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. There are actually three components to this blessing. There is an individual component, an imperative component, and a universal component. 
Individually, God says, Abram, I will bless you. You, Abram, I will bless. What does it mean to be blessed by God? One commentator put it like this. Blessing signifies the bestowal of all good, protection from all evil, the granting of grace, and enduring happiness and peace. In other words, God promises to Abraham the best that he has to offer. Abraham, I will bless you, and one of the ways that I will bless you is I'll make your name great. That is, you will have an enduring legacy. You can't stay on this earth forever, but you will leave behind you a name that is renowned. Now, this is ironic coming right after chapter 11, isn't it? Where God had promised to the people after Noah's day, I will never flood the earth again. But instead they say, well, we don't really trust the word of God. Let us build a tower up. We'll bake the bricks. We'll fill it in with tar because in case God doesn't keep his word and he floods things, we'll be safe. And as we're building and we're building so high, we'll reach into the heavens where we can't be touched by flood. And people will say, wow, those people are amazing. We will make a name for ourselves. And God says to Abram, they couldn't make a name for themselves because... I wouldn't allow it. But Abram, I will make a name for you. There's an individual component. Second, there is an imperative. Notice in chapter 12, verse 2, right at the end, it says, Abram, you shall be a blessing. Literally, it says, Abraham, be a blessing. That is in the imperative mood. Abram, be a blessing. Or if I can phrase it differently, Abram, become a role model. Abram, become a paradigm. In fact, this was God's intention for Abram's life, that people would look at him and they would say, okay, this is what it looks like to be rightly related to God. And this is what it looks like to walk by faith. And when you walk by faith, this is how God responds and he blesses. Abraham, you will be the role model for all of humanity for all of time. And people will bless themselves by you. They will say, oh, that's the way that we should live in relationship to the one true God. And that's how the universal component plays out. Abraham, be a blessing. And then all of the nations will be blessed. Not just when they follow your example, but through you I will bring the ultimate blessing to all of mankind. And we know that that is Jesus Christ. It doesn't just apply in Sunday school. Sometimes it's right in church too. The answer is Jesus Right? He's the point. Jesus is ultimately the blessing that was promised not just to Abraham, but through Abraham to all nations. Apostle Paul makes this very clear in Galatians chapter 3. He says the scripture, Genesis, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. See what Paul is saying? Paul's saying when Abraham was given a promise... You will bless all nations or all nations will be blessed through you. That was the gospel. And what is the gospel? Paul says the gospel is this. The death and the burial and the resurrection of God's son who took on human flesh. And he did that so that he could pay the penalty for your sins so you could be rightly related to God. How? Through your own good deeds? No. But just in the same way that Abraham was justified by faith as a gift because God calls those who are unworthy so that he can get all of the credit. Paul says that is the blessing. Now, were there other components to the blessing? Sure. Remember there, there, there was land, a physical, literal land. There were descendants, 
the, the Jewish people. But Paul says the, the essence of the blessing, the heart of the blessing, is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Land, a seed, and a blessing. Did, did Abraham understand all of that? Of course not. But he understood enough that he trusted God's word was true. And as a result, he responded in faith. Read with me in chapter 12, verse 4. It says, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Here's the point. Abraham went. He went. There were so many reasons for him not to go. Right? He, he, he was 75. He was wealthy. He was settled. He had no child. Surely God could have picked someone better. And in fact, when God calls so many people, I'd say most people that he calls in the Bible, they say, no, not me. Right? But Abraham went. He packed up and he went. I would describe his faith, though, as a growing faith because it was not a perfect faith. He took a step of faith, but, but it, was, it was halting. Okay? It wasn't perfect. It, it wasn't always smooth. Let me illustrate for you. According to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, God's command for Abraham to get up and move actually came to him first when he was down in Ur of the Chaldeans in southern Mesopotamia. Did Abraham perfectly obey? Well, no. Remember, he was told, leave your distant relatives, leave your close relatives, and go to the land that I will show you. What did he do? Well, he brought his nephew, he brought his father, and he went, and then he stopped. Why did he stop in Haran? Uh, You know, we're not really sure. It could be, and it probably is, that he had more relatives that were in Haran. Probably part of the family located there. We also know that Haran was the other center of worship of the moon god. And so it could be that the culture and the language, extended family were there. He brought his family with him. He, he obeyed, but he only partially obeyed, right? But then God stirred him up again, and he left Haran. And he went down into the promised land. And this time he perfectly obeyed, right? No, he didn't. He left his father behind. His father would later pass away, but he took his nephew with him. He took Lot with him, and that's going to figure into the story later as well. It was a bad idea. He should have obeyed perfectly. Lot gives him a lot of trouble. Gets into trouble, causes him trouble, but he takes his nephew, and he goes and he proceeds. And when he gets down into the land, from time to time he gets afraid that he's going to lose his life and God can't fulfill these promises if he's dead. And particularly, he's worried that he'll be killed on behalf of his wife, who is so just amazingly beautiful. And so not once, but twice, he gives her away into another man's harem and puts the promise at jeopardy. It's not perfect faith, but it's growing faith. And what we see by the end of Abraham's life is that he he trusts God so much that he takes that son of promise that he's finally received, and he said, God, the son belongs to you. I give him back as an act of worship. 
And he's even willing to put his son to death, believing, we are told, that God can actually raise someone from the dead, although he's never, ever seen anyone raised from the dead. But he trusts God to keep his word that much. He knows God must raise his son from the dead because God promised this son. And so we, so we see Abraham's faith growing, but not perfect. Abraham went. And then Abraham wandered. Abraham was a man who had, who had lived a settled life for 75 years, but the rest of his life, Abraham just wandered. Read with me in verse 6. It says, Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. In other words, Abraham went from the north all the way to the south, and then he would go down into Egypt, and he would come back into the land. Abraham spent his entire life wandering or moving. Again, the author of Hebrews picks up this event. He says, by faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as if in a foreign land, even though this was his promised land, dwelling in tents, not permanent structures, with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The only property that he ever owned in the promised land was property that he himself purchased. He just wandered. But as he wandered, he worshipped. Read with me again verse 6. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, Now the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, the geography is is really important throughout the Bible, particularly in the book of Genesis. It says he first stops in Shechem, which is the site of the Oak of Moreh. Moreh actually means um, one who is an oracle or a teacher. And Moses tells us the Canaanite was still in the land. The Oak of Moreh was the Oak of the Oracle. This is where the worshipers of Baal would gather and one of their prophets would come and he would proclaim an oracle or a word from Baal, which means Lord. Baal was the Lord of that land. And so the oracles would come and they would preach sermons from Baal to the people at the Oak of the Oracle. The oak of the soothsayer. Abraham stops at this oak while the Canaanite is still in the land. And what does he do? He builds an altar. He worships the Lord. We go, okay. So he put a few stones in a pile. He slaughtered an animal and we're we're done, right? No, let me me paint the picture a little bit more for you. As Abraham was traveling, he actually brought a lot of people with him. You'll notice in chapter 14 that there were 318 men that were born in his own household. Right? So when Lot gets taken off, Abraham has to chase him down. Well, he takes his own homegrown army with him. He's got 318 men, all of their wives, all of their children. And he's got, it, it's, you know, like first megachurch that he sets up right there by the center place 
of Baal worship. And what does he do? When he slaughters the animal, he proclaims the name of the Lord. He says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, he is Lord. Not Baal Lord, but Yahweh Lord. He preaches the gospel of the one true God, the Lord. He's preaching. Notice he moves on. Verse 8, it says, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built another altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. What does the, the place name Bethel mean? Anybody? It means house of God. Excellent. excellent. Actually, house of El. This was a second center of Canaanite worship. El was the chief god in the Canaanite pantheon. In other words, he stops at the next Canaanite center. He sets up an altar and he says, no, not El, not Baal, but the Lord. He is God. Okay? He is gathering worshipers for the Lord all along the way. I want you to notice something just fascinating with me in chapter 12 and verse 5. It says, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now let me explain what's going on here. It says he took all of their possessions which they had accumulated. Now, in in Hebrew, that would include all of their slaves. Okay, so it's all their livestock, all their other property, which would include slaves. So what does this mean? The persons which they had acquired. Well, a better translation of that is literally the souls that they had won. Okay, did you catch that? Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all of their possessions, including all of the slaves, any slaves that they had gathered, and all of the souls that they had won in Haran. As Abraham is about to depart, it's a, it's a big deal. He's a wealthy man. He's got lots of property. They hear he's leaving. He's packing up all of his stuff. And what is he doing? He's proclaiming the name of the Lord. And there are people around him who believe. And they follow him. And so Abraham, as he is moving out, there are hundreds of people going with him. And as he moves through the land, he, begins, he continues to proclaim the name of the Lord. And more and more and more people gather with him because they are believers in the Lord, in the one true God. So as he is wandering, what is he doing? He's worshiping, and he's gathering worshipers for the Lord. Abraham went in obedience. Perfect obedience, no, but he went. He took a step of faith. He wandered around, not not claiming land for himself, not building cities, not building towers, just building altars. The only architecture he left behind in the land were altars. And then he waited. He, he, He waited And he waited for a son. He waited for the fulfillment of the promise. He got the son. And then he waited for his son to have sons. And he died not seeing the fulfillment of his family becoming a large family. Claiming the land. He waited. We're told in Hebrews. Even even then he, he died in hope. Confident expectation that God would fulfill his promise. We know that God has begun to fulfill that promise in Jesus Christ. He sent that one seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham, the son of David. God in human flesh, he sent him. But even now we wait, right? We know that Jesus Christ has come, but we're waiting for the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God to return and set up his kingdom from Jerusalem and reign over all of the earth 
and bring the blessing of God to all people. And why are we waiting for this? Because God made a promise to Abraham. The, The Abrahamic promise and later the Abrahamic covenant is the thread that ties all of Scripture together. It, it is the foundation. It's the glue. It informs not just our, our salvation understanding, but also our eschatology or future events. Okay, this is, These are the most important promises. Land, seed, and blessing. And they have not yet all been fulfilled. And because God always keeps his promises, we are waiting for the return of the Son of Abraham to establish the kingdom of God on earth and bless all nations through him. Now, there are a lot of lessons for us to learn, obviously, from Abraham's life. Uh, I want to point out just a couple. Actually, as, as we're applying this to our lives, let, let's, uh, can I have the men who are preparing communion go ahead and go to the back and get that set up for us? Okay? Two lessons that I want us to notice. First, God always calls the unqualified. It's never been a person who was worthy, and that's why God called. Abraham wasn't worthy. That's not why God called him. One of the things about Abraham that's often overlooked is that he, in fact, himself was an idolater. Joshua chapter 24 tells us, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. In fact, Abraham's wife, Sarai, is named after a pagan god. Abraham worshipped pagan gods. He married into a family that also worshipped pagan gods. Nahor, his wife's name is Milcah. It's another name of a pagan god. Nahor married into a family that worshipped pagan gods. They were thoroughly pagan. And yet God chose him. And when God chose him, his walk of faith was stuttering. It wasn't smooth all the time. And what's truly remarkable is that this covenant that is given to Abraham is what's known in the ancient Near East as a grant covenant. And normally with a grant covenant, what happens is somebody does something really great on behalf of a a king or a ruler or great for a god, and that king or that god grants a covenant because of this wonderful act of obedience. But God gave Abraham the covenant before he had done anything. And even when he haltingly obeyed and when he feared and failed, God didn't revoke this grant covenant. He made it an irrevocable covenant. That is grace, people. God calls people who are unqualified and unworthy. That's why he called Abraham and that's why he called you and me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace, undeserved blessing or favor from God. For by grace, you have been rescued from the penalty of all of your sins. For by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. Just by saying, God, thank you. I am unworthy. Thank you. I accept. Not, not because we're worthy. Not because of works that we do. Not because of deeds done in righteousness. Why? So that no one may boast. Only God can boast because he has done it all. He has given us life. God chooses unworthy, unqualified people. If you're ever struggling with that feeling before the Lord, just accept it. Say, God, thank you. In spite of the fact that I am unworthy and unqualified, you have called me into relationship with yourself. But second, he also qualifies the called. That is, God is not content with our lives. He moves our lives. He shapes our lives through trials and tribulations, through blessings, 
so that we can live lives like Abraham. Again, from Paul's writing to the uh, church in Ephesus, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I love this verse because I love the imagery behind it. The word worthy means to balance the scales. In chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, we are told of our calling by God. When we are unworthy, we are chosen and blessed with Jesus Christ. And now Paul says, beginning in chapter 4 through 6, now balance the scales, live a life that is worthy of that calling. Or, Or if I can put it in terms of Genesis, live like Abraham. As you're following in obedience, maybe just with a promise from God, not knowing where you're going, but God has said go, and you get up and you go and you, you obey. Is it frightening? Yes. Are there dangers along the way? Yes, but you obey, you, you follow. And as you go wander, don't assume that this world is your home. There is so much more. So don't, don't walk through life with the goal of accumulating, but walk through life with the goal of worshiping, setting up altars everywhere you stop. And proclaiming the name of the Lord with your deeds and your words so that you're gathering worshipers to the Lord. Live like Abraham lived. As we celebrate communion, what I'd like for us to do is first uh, meditate upon the calling into relationship with God through Christ. uh, on, On the cup and what it represents, the shed blood of Christ. And the wonderful gift of his body broken for us. Let's spend some time meditating on what Christ has done for us. But then I want us to take a few moments and to think about God's calling on the rest of our lives. Have you answered that calling? Maybe it it is for the first time you need to say, God, yes, I hear your voice. I know that I'm unworthy, but I thank you that you have given me Jesus. Or or maybe God is calling you to take a, a big, bold step of faith and to follow him. Maybe he's calling you to take a small step. Have you listened to and have you answered God's calling in every area of your life? Let's take a few moments quietly to meditate. The men are going to come and serve us. Uh, We'll wait till everyone is served and then we'll take the elements together. When you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Let's take the bread together. The cup represents the blood of Jesus shed to remove the debt of our sin. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for the body and the blood of Jesus. We thank you for his perfect sacrifice through which you can call us into relationship with you. Not overlooking our sins, but having paid for them completely in Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. of Jesus. We thank you for that perfect son of Abraham that you sent. Your son to take on human flesh so that he could die on a cross for us. People who are, who are unworthy and unqualified. And yet you have loved us in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would teach us to live 
lives that are worthy of this calling. I pray, Father, you'd, you'd teach us, particularly as we look at the example of Abraham, how to, how to live like him, how to walk with you in faith. And even when we stumble and fail, to trust in your promise and in your faithfulness. Father, I pray for each and every one of us. As you call us to take bold steps of faith, even this week we would step out in courage. Father, we thank you for the promises that we have in Jesus and that you are faithful to your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.